Like most people, I like to know where I'm going before I get there. And that's really one of the many things that the Bible and the spirit of prophecy does for us. They let us know where we're going before we get there. Of course, we have to choose to go. Here's where we're going. We're going to talk about the war. We also need to recognize and understand God's laws. And we're going to spend a little time reasoning from cause to effect. And then we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of diabetes, just the basics. And then we'll get into the big question of the day, what actually causes diabetes. A lot of people talk about diabetes, but they don't tell you what actually causes it. So we're going to get into that in a way that hopefully you will be able to remember and share it with your family. We're also going to talk about how the body works the right way, and we're going to talk about how the body works the wrong way. And since we're talking about diabetes, we're going to see what the American Diabetes Association recommends, specifically when it comes to meat. And in this war, we're going to be facing the resistance. And then importantly, in this war, you can fight back and you have effective weapons. And the war comes down to choice. Today I'm calling you to fight the resistance. Usually in stories, in the movies, and in life, folk want to be part of the resistance, but not today. Today the resistance we're talking about is insulin resistance. And when we fight insulin resistance, then we're on the path to conquering diabetes. We're talking about type 2 diabetes today, but the principles we're learning about will apply to type 1 diabetes, type 3 diabetes, and other diseases as well. And if you don't have diabetes, well, praise God. After today, you can help someone who does not only fight type 2 diabetes, but win the war. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10:3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. And Ephesians 6:12 says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are all in a spiritual war, and although the war is spiritual, it is manifested in the physical world, including in our bodies. One of the battles we have to fight is the battle against the cause of disease. The cause of disease, not against disease itself. Sometimes we focus on the fight against the disease and we never get to the cause. Ministry of Healing, page 128 says that health does not depend on chance. It is a result of obedience to law. In general, no one gets upset at gravity when they fall off a ladder or out of a tree. They're upset at all kinds of other things that contributed to them falling, but they aren't upset at gravity. The law is the law, it doesn't change. When you hear the term God's laws, what do you think of? Most Christians think about the Ten Commandments. But the law of gravity is also one of God's laws. And he has laws that govern how our bodies function too. Does it matter if I'm aware of the law? Does that change how the law functions? No, of course not. My lack of knowledge of the law doesn't change it or change how it functions. That's why parents put a baby gate at the stairs when baby is learning how to walk. Because baby doesn't know about the law of gravity yet, but gravity will do what gravity does. 
whether we know or understand the law or not. It also doesn't matter if you're outside of the law to one extreme or the other. Both directions will result in death. Similarly, there is a law of blood sugar in your body. And if you ignore it or try to break it, there will be consequences. Of course, one of the consequences is type 2 diabetes. If your blood sugar gets too high, bad things happen. And if your blood sugar gets too low, bad things happen. For your body to be happy, you've got to stay within the confines of the law. So we now know that the function of our bodies are governed by laws. And when we break the laws that govern the functions of our body, we end up with symptoms and disease. And if we continue to break the law, quite frankly, we end up dead. The cause of symptoms and disease is breaking the laws of health, whether knowingly or unknowingly. We've got to fix the cause to get rid of the effect. Disease is not the enemy. Your symptoms aren't the enemy either. Yes, disease was originated by the enemy, but just like tribulations and trials, God uses symptoms and disease to accomplish a good purpose. He uses symptoms and disease to let us know that we're out of compliance with the laws and are heading towards death. They are used to wake us up and motivate us to change and correct the cause of the problem. The fire alarm is not the enemy. The fire that's burning down your house and causing the alarm to go off, that's the problem. It's the cause that is the ultimate problem, not the symptoms or disease. So you don't want to just take a bunch of medications and take the battery out of the alarm, stopping the symptoms. Instead, you need to ask yourself, why are you having those symptoms and that disease? What's your why? I want you to remember that question because we'll come back to it later. Disease is an effort of nature to free the system from conditions that result from the violations of the laws of health. Again, it's basically the fire alarm that lets you know you have a problem. On that same page in Ministry of Healing, you'll find the steps to getting back to health. It says in the case of sickness, the cause should be ascertained, unhealthful conditions should be changed, wrong habits corrected, then nature is to be assisted in her effort to expel impurities and to reestablish right conditions in the system. With that foundation laid, let's get directly into the fight. So let's start with what is often the first question. How do I know if I have it? Typically, there are two ways I can find out. The first way is when I already have some dysfunction and I'm searching for why I have these symptoms frequent urination, unexplained weight loss, constant fatigue, constant thirst. The second way I can find out is when I don't have any symptoms at all, but I'm actively checking to see if I'm in harmony with the law of blood sugars, so I go and get lab work checked even though I feel healthy. If your fasting blood sugar is between 90 to 125, you're pre-diabetic, and if it's above 125, you're already diabetic. If your hemoglobin A1C is 5.7 to 6.4, you're pre-diabetic. And if it's above 6.4, then you're already diabetic. And if your oral glucose tolerance test is 140 to 199, you're pre-diabetic. And if it's above 199, 
you're definitely diabetic. Of course, if you're having these symptoms and your blood sugars are abnormal, then it really doesn't matter if you're in the pre-diabetic range. If you've got symptoms, you're no longer pre-diabetic, you're already diabetic. And you should know that there's all kinds of things that can go wrong in your body when you break the law of optimum blood sugar, like loss of toes and feet, or vision loss, or kidney disease, or heart disease, just to name a few. With all that said, now let's reason from cause to effect and tackle the question, what causes diabetes? Is it your genetics? Some people can go back three or four generations of parents and grandparents and great-grandparents with diabetes. DNA is in every cell. It can be considered the blueprint. Sometimes mutations in your DNA causes your cells to do bad things or not to do the good things it's supposed to do. This is genetic expression of a disease from a genetic mutation, but in the vast scope of diseases, it's actually rare. For example, familial polyposis is an inherited condition where a mutation in the cells of the colon causes them to overgrow without stopping, and those cells form countless polyps in the colon that then develop into colon cancers. They develop hundreds or even thousands of polyps, and without polyp removal, they will get colon cancer regardless of their lifestyle. That is genetics actually causing the disease. However, usually a mutation in your DNA doesn't change what your cells do, but it makes it easier for them to act badly or not do the good things. This is genetic predisposition. That would be like having a family history of colon cancer and then developing cancer at age 35, 45, or 55. The mutation did not cause your cancer, but it did make you more susceptible to getting cancer. This is how genetics factors into diabetes. Your genes don't make you diabetic, but they can make you more likely to become diabetic if you do the stuff we're gonna talk about in a little bit. Your genes load the gun, but a loaded gun can be sitting on the table and it will not kill you. Something has to pull the trigger. So what pulls the triggers on the gun your genes loaded? Your lifestyle pulls the trigger. By the way, does everyone know what New Start stands for? It stands for nutrition, exercise, water, sunshine, temperance, air, rest, and trust in God. That's the New Start acronym, the eight laws of health. When we think of our lifestyle and diabetes, we think about that nutrition part, our diet. But it's not just our diet. It's also exercise, sleep, water, and the rest of the New START acronym. But diet is a key factor. So what causes us to eat the stuff that kills us by giving us diabetes and avoid eating the stuff that will keep us alive? We may think what we eat is governed by taste and that we have no control over our tastes. Yes, taste often does direct what we choose to eat but our taste is actually molded by many factors that don't have anything to do with our taste buds. For example, our tastes are molded by how we were raised and where we were raised. In other words, our culture. If you were raised in Japan, 
you're going to have a taste for different foods than if you were raised in Nigeria. Taste is not genetic. It is molded by culture, which is a compilation of our beliefs and our thoughts. Taste is also affected by the foods you've exposed yourself to during your lifetime. And by beholding, we become changed. We try different things, and sometimes we like it right away. Sometimes it grows on us over time, and sometimes we choose to leave it alone after the first try. But if we choose to keep exposing ourselves to something, it will change us. So from childhood, as we grow, we actually train our tastes by our thoughts and our decisions. Along with taste, our emotions are also a strong driver of what we choose to eat which again is a key factor in developing diabetes. Most events like family gatherings, birthdays, weddings, they're all tied to food. And then we tie food to the emotions that those events give us. But our emotions are driven by our beliefs. If we believe something will harm us, we experience fear. Our beliefs actually dictate what we eat. For example, we believe we can't have a gathering or an event without food. Or we believe we could never develop a taste for a healthy diet. Or we believe an entire quart of ice cream will ease the pain of an emotional trauma. And we could do a similar analysis with the other lifestyle causes. For example, what determines if you work out regularly or not? Again, it's your beliefs. Conventional medicine now recognizes that the majority of the diseases we suffer today are lifestyle related. And lifestyle is governed by what we believe. So this is not an exaggeration, and diabetes is no exception. What we believe dictates what we do or don't do, and what we do or don't do is making us sick. So before you can change, what you do on a consistent basis, in other words, before you can fight the resistance and win, you've got to change what you believe. Eating doesn't start in the mouth. It starts in the mind. Anyone who has experienced a loss of appetite intuitively knows this. Your mouth can work fine and your stomach can work fine, but if your mind isn't telling you that it wants to eat, you have a hard time eating. We basically think hungry, and then we feel hungry, and we eat. And what happens often, again and again and again, is we eat way too much of fat and sugar. And science is now confirming that it actually is fat that is the major culprit in the cause of diabetes. They're both culprits, but fat is the major culprit. Eating excess fat and sugar again and again will raise your blood sugars. And this cycle of elevated blood sugars levels eventually and ultimately will lead to diabetes. So now let's go much deeper and look at how it should work. Let's start with how it works with a healthy, whole food, plant-based diet and every day, you and I have a choice, right? So here's what happens when we choose to eat the apple and not the donut. You see food or smell food or think about food, 
and your brain starts preparing for food by increasing saliva production in the mouth and acid production in the stomach. Meanwhile, your stomach tells your body that you're hungry by producing the hormone ghrelin. That hormone tells your brain, I'm hungry, tell the mouth to eat something. So you eat some healthy food, including that apple. Now, many things happen when you eat, but I'm gonna focus on two main pathways. So as you eat, the stomach is stretched, stimulating nerves in the stomach. Ghrelin production stops, so you no longer feel hungry. And that stretched stomach sends a signal to your brain that I'm full, stop eating. Meanwhile, as you eat, the level of sugars in your blood starts to increase slowly, 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 because the fiber in that healthy food slows the process down, so the body has time to react and handle the rising blood sugar levels. The sugar in your blood signals your pancreas, except for fructose, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And your pancreas starts cranking out insulin. That insulin tells your cells, mainly muscle, liver, and fat cells, to take up the sugar. And then you go on your digestive walk, and you do other activities like exercise, and you burn up the sugar, and life is good. Insulin also tells your fat cells to start cranking out your satiety hormone, leptin, which tells your brain to tell you, stop eating, I'm full. So you don't overeat the healthy stuff, and of course you're not eating the unhealthy stuff at all, and your blood sugar stays in a normal range. That's how it's supposed to work. You just got fed, and your body is happy and healthy. And you went on your digestive walk, which helps to lower your blood sugar, and your body is very happy. Now, I see what happens when I eat the apple and I choose the right way. So the obvious question is, if excess fat and sugar cause diabetes, what actually happens when I eat the donut? What happens to the body when I choose the wrong way over and over again? Here's what happens when you eat the donut. You're thinking about food, but your body doesn't actually need any food right now. It could be an emotional food signal, like my boyfriend just broke up with me, so I'm thinking about a pint of ice cream, or I'm having a good time with my friends and I'm watching them eat Krispy Kreme donuts and potato chips. Positive or negative, that emotion now has you thinking about food, and those thoughts are sending signals to your body. Your stomach interprets that signal as food is coming, prepare yourself and it sends out ghrelin that says, I'm hungry, let's eat. So you eat, but you're not eating healthy food, or maybe it is healthy food, but you're eating too much of it, or eating it between meals. But we know there's nothing healthy about that donut. Now the stomach will get stretched as you eat, even with the bad stuff. And that stretch will signal for ghrelin, your hunger hormone, to be shut off. But you ignore that full feeling because you're not eating because you're truly hungry. You're eating because of your emotions. And your emotions don't care about ghrelin and full sensations. Your emotions care about the endorphins that your comfort foods trigger. 
and typically what gets eaten when we eat between meals or eat because of emotions is fat and sugar. When sugar comes in as it was designed to, linked up with fiber and all of the other good nutrients, our bodies are very happy. But even this good sugar that is not a loner but is hanging out with its best friend fiber can be too much if we overeat it or eat it between meals. But what's wrong with fructose? Well, natural fructose found mainly in fruits is good for you. But when it's isolated and concentrated, it turns against you and joins the resistance. There are multiple different types of sugars, but fructose and sucrose, which is actually a combination of fructose and glucose, are the sweetest. The food manufacturers know that, so when they add sugar to the processed foods and to the refined foods, it's gonna be fructose or sucrose. Unlike glucose and other sugars, Fructose doesn't tell the pancreas to make insulin. The sugar isn't taken up into the cells like it should be, and the fat cells aren't stimulated to release leptin, so you don't feel full. Remember, you already ignored that stretched stomach sensation, so now you're not getting the signal from your satiety hormone either. So of course, you keep eating and drinking. And of course, your blood sugars go up. Fructose is definitely part of the resistance, but the badness doesn't stop there. When we keep eating all that sugar and fat in that donut, your body stuffs it into storage, meaning our fat cells. But eventually, our fat storage gets full. Eating excess food, even healthy food, leads to an increase in fat, our main energy storage system. And on top of that, high fructose found in sodas, juice, processed pastries, and anything that has high fructose corn syrup in it, also tells your body directly to make fat and tells your liver to store fat. There are three bad pathways triggered when your fat storage gets full. There's more, but we're gonna focus on these three. In the first pathway, your muscle storage is compromised. Once the normal fat stores have been overstuffed and then stuffed some more, then the body starts storing fat in places it doesn't belong, like your muscle and your liver. Muscle cells are typically designed by God to store sugar as glycogen for quick release when more energy is needed. Your muscle is not designed to store fat. Fat in the muscle is broken down into toxic particles including free radicals and other lipotoxic mediators, or what we can just call fat toxins. These fat toxins cause what's called lipotoxicity, or fat toxicity. Free radicals are like bombs blowing up all throughout the body, causing inflammation throughout the body and damaging everything. That's why you hear so much talk about antioxidants. Antioxidants fight against those free radicals. And one of the organs, organs that the free radicals damage is the pancreas, so it can't make as much insulin. So the muscle cells don't take up as much sugar and blood sugar goes up. High levels of sugar and fat in the blood also trigger the inflammatory process separate from those fat toxins. 
and inflammation without a physical injury is generally up to no good. Inflammation causes damage to the liver and pancreas, separate from the damage caused directly by the fat toxins, making it even harder for the pancreas to make insulin. Eventually, the insulin production line just can't keep up, and then insulin levels drop off and blood sugars rise and rise. But that is not all the badness that is going on with that between-meal snack or that donut. In the second pathway, fat is in the blood where it ought not be. Triglycerides, which are fat particles, are released from your overstuffed fat cells directly into the blood, and high triglycerides damage your pancreas. In fact, high triglycerides is the third most common cause of acute pancreatitis. Your damaged pancreas can't make as much insulin, and your blood sugars go up. But the badness isn't over yet. In the third pathway, liver storage is compromised. Like your muscle, your liver normally stores sugar as glycogen and releases it when muscle glycogen starts getting low. Your liver has a much larger store of glycogen than your muscle. In addition to that, your liver also makes sugar in a process called gluconeogenesis. Gluco means sweet, neo means new, and genesis means to make. So this is the process of your liver making new sugar molecules out of other stuff. It does that when your glycogen stores, which are your just-in-case sugar stores in the liver and the muscle, get very low. And like your muscle, your liver was not designed to store fat. But when your fat storage is full, fat gets stuffed into the muscle and liver as well. Fat in the liver disables the liver from shutting off gluconeogenesis. So now your liver can't stop making sugar. So now you're making new sugar, although you're already full to the brim with sugar and fat. Remember, when things are working normally, increased blood sugar tells your pancreas to make more insulin before the levels get too high. So your valiant pancreas kicks into high gear, it gets mad, and starts making a ton of insulin. Insulin starts pushing sugar into the cells, mainly muscle, liver, and fat cells. But your cells are already full to the brim, and your cells start resisting taking in more sugar, and the blood sugars go up. In other words, your own cells join the resistance with fat and fructose and outright insulin resistance develops. It's a mutiny in your own body. Your own cells start fighting for the other side. But in response to your blood sugars going up, your courageous pancreas is still trying to fight and tries desperately to overcome this resistance by making even more insulin. Now, if lab work is done at this point, you'll actually see a rise in your insulin levels before your blood sugar levels get into the diabetic range. That is your, your courageous pancreas trying to fight what you're doing to yourself. But unfortunately, those crazy high insulin levels actually trigger your appetite, leading you to eat more, which leads to even more fat and sugar in the blood, which takes you back to the second pathway. These pathways are interconnected. 
In fact, all three pathways are interconnected. Once the body's fat storage gets full and fat is being stuffed into the muscle and into the liver and directly into the blood, all kinds of badness happens. And the result is your blood sugars go up. And it becomes a vicious cycle of badness going on in your body. And what happens when all this badness is repeated day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year? That's the resistance at work. This repetition right here will shorten your life, rob you of its quality and abundance, and reduce your ability to fulfill whatever your purpose is that God put you on this planet at this time to fulfill. I don't know about you, but to me, that would be an accurate description of the enemy identified plainly in John 10.10. 10. The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But thank God the text doesn't end there. It goes on to say, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. But surely the American Diabetes Association is on our side in fighting insulin resistance, right? Well, they start out listing examples of what they consider good protein sources, including fish, chicken, so-called lean beef, and cheese. Of course, soy is mentioned, so vegans won't get mad. But animal proteins are mainly the proteins they're recommending. But then they do add in the caveat that all those animal protein sources might increase your risk of heart disease. But instead of telling you about plant-based options, they basically say, if you get the lean cuts, it'll be healthier. So now you've got to be thinking, well, what about beans? Well, they quickly discourage any thought of beans and legumes by telling you, keep in mind that those plant-based proteins are high in carbohydrates, with no mention of the fact that they're also high in fiber, which helps to lower the blood sugar. The reason why this is disturbing is because meat is also part of the resistance. Most of you probably know about meat and heart disease. And quite a few of you likely know about meat and cancer. In fact, your colon hates meat, and colon cancer can be the result. But meat also worsens diabetes. Animal protein, not just from red meat, but all animal protein, including chicken, and yes, even fish, all animal proteins increase a bunch of toxic compounds in your body that cause oxidative stress, inflammation, and lead to insulin resistance. And remember, there's no fiber in meat. Studies have shown that replacing animal protein with plant protein lowers fasting glucose, lowers fasting insulin, and lowers hemoglobin A1C. But if you're going to fight back against the resistance and win, you're going to need some weapons. And the way to fight the resistance is with what you eat, with what you do, and with what you think. With what you eat, you're addressing the immediate cause and dealing with the symptoms. 
And with what you do, you're bringing in the other aspects of lifestyle, like exercise and good sleep. But even more importantly, with what you think, you're addressing the deeper and ultimate cause, your beliefs. Right thoughts are your most powerful weapon. But to get your mind right, you've got to change what you think. And to change what you think, you've got to change what you're feeding your mind. Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. This is your filter for what you read, for what you watch, for what you listen to, and what you let your mind dwell on during the day. So if what you're about to watch or listen to or read is not true, it's not honest, it's not pure, it's not lovely, it isn't of good report, and there's no virtue or praise in it, then you don't need to be watching it, you don't need to be listening to it, and you don't need to be reading it. Philippians 2.5, it says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. God is telling us that we can ask for the mind of Christ, and he will give it to us, because everything he asks us to do, like letting Christ's mind be in us, he enables us to do through his power. He would not tell us to let this mind be in us who is not willing to put it in us, because the only way for us to get it is for him to give it to us. We have to submit to him, and he will give us that mind which was also in Christ Jesus. We have to recognize that we don't have the strength to overcome on our own. And we need a champion, and we have one. Jesus won the victory over the enemy at the cross. We have to go to the cross and give all of what is hindering us and weighing us down. Take it to God in prayer and get strength from him to get back up and fight. Confess to him that you've been trying to fight this thing on your own strength and realize that you just can't. Repent from holding on to what he promised to bear for us. Ask him to fight for you and claim the promise in Exodus 14, 14 that says, the Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Another important aspect of your prayer is asking God why. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not one of those why me prayers. Now, to those of you who may actually be praying the why me prayer, you do need to understand that God's shoulders are big enough for you to cry on. He hears our cries, and he feels our pain. He doesn't instruct us not to whine and complain because it's irritating to him, but he instructs us not to whine and complain because it's harmful to us. The why prayer is different and has a constructive purpose. It's asking God earnestly and with an open heart and an open mind, why is this situation happening? Why do I have diabetes? And what am I supposed to learn from it? And what am I supposed to be doing differently? It's about getting to the cause of your problem and dealing with it. 
God will always answer the sincere and earnest why prayer, even when we're doing stuff we should know is wrong. If we sincerely ask him why, he'll let us know if there's something we need to confess, something we need to do, or something we need to learn. The key is when he tells us why, we then need to address the why and do what it is that he wants us to do, confess what it is that he wants us to confess, and learn what it is that he wants us to learn. For example, he may be telling some of you that you need to implement a new start lifestyle. And with that new start lifestyle, we can fight the resistance with what we eat, like fruits, veggies, and whole grain carbs, as minimally processed as possible, meaning as close to the way God made them as possible. Plant-derived proteins, the highest source would be your legumes, which includes beans, peas, lentils, and seeds. Plant-derived fats, like avocados, nuts, seeds, and olives, in moderation without added salt or sugar. On the flip side, it is well known that after a period of fasting, insulin levels fall, but insulin sensitivity rises, meaning insulin resistance decreases. So each molecule of insulin is having a greater effect. That improves your fasting and after-meal glucose levels. Fasting can be a challenge for some of us. And some extra prayer and Bible study can fortify us while we're fasting. So it's even more important that you get your recommended amount of daily water in. Not juice, not sodas, and definitely not coffee or hot chocolate, but water. A good way to remember how much you should drink is half your body weight. So if you weigh 140 pounds, you should drink 70 ounces of water a day. Getting enough uninterrupted sleep at night decreases your risk of getting diabetes and decreases your complications if you already have diabetes. Adults need between seven to nine hours of sleep per night. With older adults needing a little less, closer to the seven hours, and younger adults needing a little more, closer to the nine hours. And remember that the hours before midnight are the most beneficial because melatonin peaks at midnight. And if you're not already sleeping soundly a couple of hours before midnight, you're gonna blunt that melatonin peak. I mentioned that taking a walk, this is not your high intensity workout, but a nice paced digestive walk for about 15 minutes after each meal will help to lower your blood sugars. Well, in addition to your digestive walks, you should be doing some cardio exercises, which get your heart rate up and burns fat and sugar. And you also need to do some resistance exercises, which builds more muscle, allowing you to burn even more energy. Both help to lower your blood sugar levels. There are some herbs that can help get your blood sugars back on track. Now, Yushi Pines, we believe in complete lifestyle change, which is practical and sustainable for the long haul. So we don't encourage replacing a bunch of drug pills with a bunch of supplement pills and herbs. But we do recognize that in the short term, herbs and supplements may be necessary to get you back on track. Now in closing, remember, you are in a war. It's a spiritual war 
that is often manifested in our physical bodies. Make the right choices now so that you can win. And God has laws, including those that govern health. When we break these laws, we often end up with disease, which are the effects. And we need to start by addressing the cause, which is breaking God's laws. Your genes may load the gun, but it's your lifestyle that pulls the trigger. And disease is not the enemy. Your symptoms aren't the enemy either. They are the fire alarm that lets you know you have a problem and pushes you to search for the cause. And when things work right, you eat healthy stuff only at mealtimes and you don't overeat the healthy stuff and you're not eating the unhealthy stuff at all, you're burning more, you're storing less, and your blood sugars stay in a normal range. Remember, simply put, the bottom line is the choice that we make to eat excess fat and sugar is the cause of diabetes. And drilling down on how things work, when things don't go right because of lifestyle choices, we overeat, we eat the bad stuff, we start storing fat everywhere, inflammation increases, the pancreas is damaged, the cells refuse to take in any more sugar, insulin level rises, and blood sugar levels increase. And again, what happens when all this badness is repeated day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year? Diabetes. But we're not without hope, and we aren't without weapons in this fight either. We are well able to use all of these weapons these God-given remedies to fight the resistance and win, directing our thoughts, choosing a champion, praying in faith, asking God why so we can address what he points out, eating a whole food plant-based diet, fasting to reset the body, drinking water and not sodas and juices, committing to exercise and walking after we eat, when needed for the short term, using herbs instead of medications to reduce blood sugar levels, and getting good sleep every night. Those are your weapons. In short, we are well able to win this war. Put this into practice and prevent diabetes if you don't have it, and conquer diabetes if you do, and all the badness that comes with it. Share this knowledge and these principles with others, and help them obey the laws that govern the body and fight the resistance and win. You actually can cure diabetes. Your body is constantly repairing and restoring, and that is a major factor of what happens in sleep. Sleep is your area where you restore and repair your body. And so, so long as you're not continuing the damage, if you're continuing the damage, that restoration is not gonna happen. But if you stop the damaging processes and you get rid of all that inflammation, your body can repair and restore. Today, the choice is yours.